Good morning, and please uh, open up your Bibles, if you would, this morning to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 3, and we'll read through verse 11 here in a little bit. That'll be the passage of Scripture we're studying today. Now, as you're finding that, uh, that passage of Scripture this morning, I need a couple of children to help me out, all right? So, Trinity, I want you to try to take this out of my hand. Come on now. Tell me when you're starting. Oh, you're doing it? Okay. Keep pulling. Any success? No. All right, all right, stop for a second. Okay. Let's just give someone else a chance. You want to try? Pull it out of my hand. Are you trying? Oh, really? Okay, all right. Good job. All right, let's see someone else. All right, someone try to pull this out of my hand. It's only going to work if it's a child. Thanks, Chris. All right. All right, anybody? Anybody? All right, Jesse. All right. Here we go. Hold on. All right. All right. Here we go. Oh my gosh, my hands are so. All right. Good. Good try, Jesse. Good try. All right. Now, why couldn't you children pull this little tube out of my hand? Why couldn't you pull it out of my hand? Because you're because I'm strong and you're weak. Okay. Not necessarily that you're weak. I'm just stronger than you are, okay? And yes, Jesse, I'm, I'm a little bit stronger than you, although I was beginning to worry a little bit there. It was beginning to slip, so you ended it at the right time. Yeah, I'm stronger than you guys are, so I can hold on to this, and, and you guys cannot take it from my hand. I use this illustration oftentimes when I, when I talk to children about the gospel and when I try to explain to them about our security in Christ, and I base that illustration off of this passage of Scripture in John chapter 10, verse 27. So I know you've looked up 1 John 2. Stay there. I want to read John chapter 10, beginning of verse 27 to you. Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And listen to this, no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one's going to snatch us out of Jesus' hand. Then verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater, and that word could be translated stronger, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Once held, always held. That's the security Jesus wants us to have that's the security Jesus wants true believers to have. That if we are in his hand, no one can snatch us from his hand. Why? Because the Father is stronger than anyone or anything else that may try to snatch us away. Now these are precious truths to us as Christians. So I want you to imagine with me the anxiety and the confusion that was stirring in the minds of the believers in some of the churches of Asia Minor to whom John is writing this letter that we're looking at, as they see people, people who claim to be Christians, beginning to seemingly fall away from the faith. Imagine the befuddlement as supposed brothers and sisters in Christ began to leave, to go out from the church, as can be seen in chapter 2, verse 19 of this letter. Imagine the confusion as people who had apparently professed Christ began to be ensnared and pulled away by false teaching. 
This had to leave the true Christians confused, worried, and asking. Asking questions like this. Brother John, how can we know? How can we know that our faith is real? That our standing is true? That our knowledge of God is genuine? How can we know? If it is possible... This had to be what they were wondering. If it is possible to make claims about knowing God that are invalid, well, then how can we be sure that we know him at all? Well, these are the questions I believe John is addressing as he writes this letter to the Christians in Asia Minor. And I think it's the questions that the Christians have had down through the centuries. These are the questions that motivated him to write. And we know that because in 1 John 5, 13, it says this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. So that's the reason we've entitled this series, How Can You Know? So John's purpose is to supply tests by which the genuine Christian may be discerned from the false Christian, and vice versa. The false believers that were infecting the church seem to be driven by, and we've talked about this the last two weeks, some early form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a worldview that believed that whatever is physical, whatever is material, is evil, inherently evil. Meanwhile, the immaterial, the spiritual, the unseen, is good. They also claimed, these Gnostics, to profess some sort of secret esoteric knowledge that allowed them to know God on a higher spiritual plane. They felt that they, what they did in the body, what they did physically, because material is just evil and is, is not worthy of consideration, whatever they did in the body really didn't matter all that much. What was important to them was some private, mystical knowing or experiencing God. It's not too much unlike things in our day when many claim to know God or have a relationship with God while at the same time saying that how they live in the body doesn't matter. If we think Gnosticism is something from centuries ago, we're fooling ourselves. It exists today as well. People talk about having a relationship with God, but it really doesn't matter what they actually do with their physical bodies, how they live their lives. The phrase... Relationship, not religion, can be a well-meaning but sometimes misapplied phrase that leaves the church full of Gnostics. It's all about relationship, not religion. And I understand why we say that, but we've got to be careful because we've got to understand what John is saying in this passage we're looking at today. And that is that if we truly have a relationship, we're called to live a different way. Many in our day claim to know God, but there is an absence of the true knowledge of God in our society and in our churches today, evidenced by the lack of holiness in people's lives. First John, therefore, battles Gnosticism of his day, and it battles the Gnosticism of our day. So I want to stand now as we read First John 2, verses 3 through 11. So please stand in the honor of reading God's word. I want you to think about what you're holding in your hand. You're holding God's word. <laughs> think about it. The Israelites shuddered in fear as God began to speak at Mount Sinai. So much so that they said, you go talk to God, Moses, for us. 
And so we need to understand, we need to hold this book with fear and trembling, knowing we have the Word of God mediated through the Holy Spirit, given to us in, in words on paper. And so this is an important thing that we're doing as we stand and read, and that's why we do stand. So 1 John 2, beginning in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would not allow there to be any blinded eyes in the room this morning. That we would see what a true knowledge of you, a true relationship with you looks like. How it's fleshed out. So God, I pray that you'd give me a voice to speak your words accurately. And I pray that you give all of us in here ears to hear your words accurately as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated. As I have already mentioned in the previous sermons... The epistle of 1 John is very difficult to outline. Uh, A clear structure of it is hard to discern. In reality, the book is more like a beautiful symphony that cycles in and out of various themes and ideas which which reinforce John's goal of giving assurance to his readers. So as we progress, you'll see key words. As we progress through the book, you'll see key words stated and then later restated. Themes emphasized and then re-emphasized. Ideas introduced and then reintroduced and expanded upon later in the letter. But to help us remember where we've come from, two weeks ago we began the series with verses 1 through 4, where we looked at the doctrinal truths about the nature of Christ that we must believe in if our faith is to be genuine. We saw that the message of the gospel itself is not some spiritual idea or or esoteric philosophy like the Gnostics held to, but it was a person. The message is a person, a flesh and blood person called Jesus Christ. And what one must believe about this person is they must believe the apostolic message that he is the preexistent God and he is the historically manifest Christ. He is 100% God and 100% man. Only in believing those apostolic truths can you begin to have true fellowship with God. But fellowship with God means fellowship with light, because God is light. And so last week we saw in verses 5 through chapter uh, 2, verse 2, that because God is light, those who truly know him cannot be indifferent about their sin. Nor can they be in denial of their sin. Instead, through the blood of Christ, those who are truly in the light confidently pursue forgiveness and confidently pursue fellowship. Now, the ending of last week's passage, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, 
give us a glorious indicative statement which forms the basis for this week's imperative statements. Indicatives and imperatives. Now, what, what do we mean by that? Maybe you've heard that before, the indicatives and the imperatives of Scripture. Well, in both English and in Greek, uh, in the grammar of both English and Greek, the verb is described in, in terms of its tense or its mood. And two of those moods are the indicative mood and the imperative mood. The indicative mood indicates or expresses or asserts objective fact or reality. It indicates something that's true. It makes a statement or a declaration. It's the mood of certainty. When the New Testament expresses the truths of what God has done for us, the gospel truths of what God has accomplished on our behalf, it expresses them in the indicative mood. They are fact. They are certain. This is God's proactive side of the equation. He has done it. The imperative mood, in contrast, expresses a command or an order or a request or an exhortation. It's the mood of volition. Theologically, uh, the imperatives call on believers to respond in a certain way, to live in a certain way. This is the believer's reactive side of the equation, what we now want to do in light of what God has done. So in Scripture, the imperatives always flow from and depend upon the indicatives. So that's what we have here. Here's the indicative from last week. But if anyone does sin, we have indicative, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is, that's a statement of truth, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so now, standing on that marvelous indicative statement comes some imperatives. Come some commands, some exhortations in today's text. So I want us to see three things from today's text, really three tests. There's three tests that John's going to put before the believers to examine their faith. And so here's the first of your notes this morning. Number one, a true knowledge of God unavoidably produces joyful obedience to God's commands. A true knowledge of God unavoidably produces joyful obedience to God's commands. If we truly have experienced propitiation of our sins, then inexorably good works, good deeds, obedience to God's commands follows. 1 John 2, 3, And by this we know, and that's present tense, by this we know, we're certain, that we have come to know, that's perfect tense, a completed action, Him. This is how you know now, that you already know him, if we keep his commandments. So John repeats the word know here all throughout the rest of this book. No, 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 no. K-N-O-W, not N-O. I know kids, you're used to hearing the other no, 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 all the time, right? But this no, K-N-O-W, is the word gnosis, which is where you get the word Gnostics from. And so it's almost like John is saying, in your face, Gnostics, let me show you what true knowledge is all about. He is showing them that in reality they don't know that the Gnostics don't really know anything. And that true knowledge manifests itself in practical obedience in the here and now, in the body, in the nitty gritty of everyday human experience. Only when we obey God can we be sure that we know him. Let me say that again. Only when we obey God can we be sure that we know him. Now, that statement runs against the stream of cultural evangelicalism of our day, but it's right out of Scripture. 
We know that our faith is real when we, according to John, keep his commandments. Now, John is not saying that doing or keeping the commandments is what causes or enables us to know God, but vice versa. It's the consequence of it. If we truly know God, we will have the desire and the enabling to do and obey, to do what God says and obey his word. Now, to truly know God is the same thing as we saw earlier of having fellowship with him. We saw that back in verse 3 of chapter 1 in verse 6 and then in verse 7. It's to be united to him, is to have a real and dynamic, intimate relationship with him. Knowing him is not knowing facts about him or simply acknowledging that he is real or that he operates in, in, world's, in the world's circumstances. It's knowing him personally by faith, which results in radical transformation. You see, the Gnostics claim to have real faith, to have real knowledge, but their claims were betrayed by their lack of obedience. If we have true faith that truly knows God, it'll be fleshed out in the way we live our lives. Otherwise, our knowledge is nothing more than what the demons have. James 2.17 says this, faith by, itself, uh, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. If we have true faith, meaning that we truly know God and are truly united to God in fellowship, then we will keep his commands. Jesus said in John 15, verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then he says this in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So yes, it's a joyful obedience. That's how we tell the difference between mere outward adherence to commandments and true obedience. True obedience involves inward delight and cherishing of what God has said. Head, heart, and then hands, right? If the heart is bypassed, if it's just head and then hands, and the heart is by, bypassed, then our faith may not be real. It's a joyful faith that flows out of a great cherishing of God's word. If obedience to God's commands aren't flowing out of our relationship, then our relationship is a lie. That's what John says here. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Okay? What kind of relationship is that if you actually don't do what he says? It's kind of like us with, our, with the relationships that we have right on Facebook. I mean, how many of you have lots of friends on Facebook? I mean, somehow I've got like 1,100 friends, and I don't think I know like 900 of them. They're my friends. I'm actually friends with R.C. Sproul, all right? Friends. Yeah, me and R.C., we go, we don't go anywhere. He doesn't know me. And that, that's how some people are with God. They claim to know God, but there's no evidence of anything real there. They've just liked God or followed God. But there's nothing in their life that really shows that there's any true dynamic relationship there. 
Now, when, when John says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. This sounds familiar to us because it's the same pattern of words we saw in last week's section. You see that same pattern in verse 6, in verse 8, in verse 10 of chapter 1, where John lays out some errant belief that some of the false teachers had, followed by a declaration that such belief is a lie. So if you think you can have a relationship with God while ignoring his commands, you are living a lie, plain and simple. James 1, let's go to James again. James 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Uh, Rich Mullins, y'all remember Rich Mullins, the the musician that wrote a lot of the CCM songs? Rich Mullins had a song where he wrote this. Faith without works is like a song you can't sing. It's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. Y'all remember those lyrics? If you don't have obedience that accompanies faith or a supposed knowledge of God, you have failed the test. But what is this obedience? What does it mean to keep his commands? Well, we'll get a clearer picture later in the text, but for now we have a foretaste in verse 5. Okay, so this verse 5 is the antithesis of the idea that one can know God without keeping his commandments. So it's, it's a parallel rebuttal, if you will. Verse 5 says this, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So what does it mean to keep his commandments? It means to keep his word. So the commands that we are called to obey obviously flow straight out of the word of God. His self-revelation. False teachers, like the Gnostics, always like to come up with various commands that they expect you to keep that are outside of God's word. The commands that we are called to keep, that true believers are called to keep, are commands that are revealed in God's word. Now the verb tenses here in verse 5 are important. The verb keeps, if you look at verse 5 there, the word keeps where it says, but whoever keeps his word is in the present active indicative tense, meaning that it's an ongoing action. It's an ongoing thing. We are to continue to keep, keep, keep his commandments, keep his word. It's not that we once kept or someday will keep, but that we throughout our Christian life are to actively pursue a life of obedience, a life of keeping God's word. Now later in that same sentence, the verb tense changes. When it says, in him truly the love of God is perfected, that last verb, is perfected, is in the perfect tense, meaning that the action has been completed. And the results of the action are now continuing on. But the action itself is done. So here what the Apostle John is saying is that those who are actively continuing in obedience to God's word are those who have already had the love of God perfected in them. Really a better translation for perfected is probably the word completed. So those who are actively ongoing throughout their life obeying God's commands are those in whom the love of God has already, in time and space, been perfected. So, that helps us to see that our obedience rests on, depends on, something that God has already done in us. Our obedience rests on, depends on, stands on, however you want to say it, something that has already been done in us. Again, the imperatives rest on the indicatives. 
What is it that John declares that has been completed in us? He says the love of God is perfected or completed. But what, is, what does John mean by the love of God? And, and to be honest, the text is a little bit ambiguous here. It's hard to really discern what he means by the love of God. There's three options. Does he mean our love for God? Does he mean God's love for us? Or does he mean God's love towards others expressed through us? Well, the language, like I said, is a bit ambiguous, but I think he's referring to the first option, our love for God has been perfected in us. Our love for God, our passion for him, our desire for him has been perfected in us, and that's why we obey. That's the ground for which we walk in a life of obedience, is that we already have his love for himself in us. Now, why do I say that? Why do I believe that that's the way we are to take that? Well, I believe that if we've truly been placed by grace into fellowship with God, into union with the Son, into an abiding relationship with Him, an intimate knowledge of Him, then there will inescapably experience a deep, we will inescapably experience a deep and irresistible love for our God and for His Son. Jesus, okay, connects our obedience and the love of God in John chapter 14, verse 15, when He says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It is perfected. His love is perfected, meaning it's completed. It's been completed. Why? Because the Spirit resides completely in those who are truly saved. The Spirit is already there in those who are saved. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love for God first with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And then love for our neighbor. Romans 5, 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Galatians 4, 6 says, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. We cry out with the love that a child would have for a loving father because and only because God has put His Spirit in us. That's why I think that the love of God has been completed or perfected in us because of what he's already done by putting his spirit in us. And therefore it results in us living a life of obedience. Loving, joyful obedience. We have enfolded into the very love that the spirit has for the father and the son. The Trinitarian love has been poured into our hearts. And it is full and it's complete. It's perfected. It's finished. Yet, in time and space, we spend our whole lives learning how to submit to live in and operate out of his completed love. And that's why we obey, because we love. We spend our whole lives learning how to live in and live out God's love. As we progress in sanctification, we increasingly know the depth of his love for us and increasingly learn how to be obedient conduits of his love towards others. And the best way we can learn how to live that way is to look to the master, which is the next test. It brings me to the next thing in our sermon today. A true union with God inevitably leads to sincere imitation of Christ's way of life. Look at verse 6. Whoever says he abides, that's union and fellowship again. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way, same way in which he walked. Now the language of walking, let's remind us of last week, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So here again, we see John. John has this habit of, of repeating things, but slightly changing them when he repeats it later. So to give us a fuller picture of what he's trying 
to communicate. So we can safely say that walking in the light is synonymous in walking in the same way in which he walked. In other words, it's walking in imitation of Christ Jesus, who is the light of the world. We are told to imitate Christ in the Scriptures. Paul imitated Christ when he says, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Of course, any imitation we attempt is an imperfect imitation. In 1986, my buddies and I really got into the World Cup in 1986. Did anybody in here watch the 1986 World Cup? I doubt it. All right. So we're, I did. I watched the 1986 World Cup. And in the World Cup, um, Brazil was my favorite team. And there was this player named Josimar. Now, Josimar scored, I think, three goals in that World Cup. But it wasn't just he scored any old goals. They were spectacular goals. He scored these amazingly beautiful and spectacular goals during that World Cup. And he sort of became our hero. And I remember every day in the summer of, of 1986, after the games, we would go out to the soccer field near our house, and we would begin to try to reproduce Josimar's goals. We, tried to, we did everything we could to try to do it exactly the way Josimar did it. And you know what? We, we got better, but we never quite could, could accomplish what Josimar accomplished and so we, we weren't disappointed. We tried our best, but, but the imitation obviously was imperfect. Part of seeing and savoring Jesus Christ in the Gospels, as we've been doing for the past couple of years, is seeing and savoring his love, his patience, his mercy, his meekness, his gentleness, his boldness, his strength, his tenderness, his faithfulness, his discipline, his obedience to his Father's will and to his Father's commandments and seeking to imitate that. Hebrews 5.8 Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. True Christians have taken his yoke upon themselves and are daily, sometimes through trials and suffering, learning to be like him, and his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Easy? Light? Is it easy to live like Jesus? Is that what you're saying, Steve? So it's really simple. So just go, go be like Jesus, WWJD. Go, put your bracelet on, look at it, and be like Jesus. So that's a real lot shorter sermon than what I've got up here. That's not what I'm saying. But I do want us to listen to what John says later in this very letter. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, easy, light, not Burdensome. How can this be so? Oh, friends, we have to understand the glory of being united to Christ is that we have his spirit within us. Before we were in Christ, before we were true Christians, the law of God was a burden. It was not light. But for the one who has truly been born again, the law has now been written on our hearts. And we now desire to keep God's commandments. And more than that, because the Spirit of God is in us, we are enabled to keep God's commandments. So now, even though there is a striving and a hard work that entails the Christian life, it is, is, it is in essence easy and light and not burdensome because it is a necessary, ongoing, unstoppable work of God in our hearts through his abiding spirit. That's the glory of the new covenant. God is making it happen in the true believers. Jeremiah 31, 31, Jeremiah prophesies this truth when he speaks of the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. The Lord will make happen. He is both, he brings us into this new covenant, and he keeps both sides of it in the new covenant. What a liberating truth. That makes the yoke easy. That makes the burden light. What a liberating truth. That's why obedience is evidence of true faith because evidence is the fruit, because obedience, I'm sorry, is the fruit of the Spirit's work in a born again heart. And so we imitate the life of Christ, which means that we imitate something we cannot truly and fully have apart from God. We imitate deep, sacrificial love for God and fellow man. That's the essence of the commandments. And that's what John speaks of next. The essence of the commandments is a deep, abiding love for God and man. And so in verse 7, he says, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is that word that you have heard, is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. I think those are important words, in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. But, but let's go back here. He says old commandment, then he says new commandment. Well, what, what are we to make of these confusing statements? Can John not make up his mind? It's an old commandment. No, 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 wait, wait. It's a new commandment. Wait, it's an old. Is that, is that what's going on here? Well, of course John knows what he's doing. The Holy Spirit is inspiring his words. What's happening here is that John, John in his mind is jumping back about 30 years to a time when he was with Jesus in the upper room. Jesus had just finished showing them what true love, true servant leadership was like as he washed their feet. And he had just spoken to them about his departure. And he said these words in verse 34, words that Deemer read earlier, John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The best way to understand what John is saying in 1 John, 1 John 2 here, verses 7 and following, is to get our minds around what Jesus is saying in John chapter 13. You see, the new was not a new command because it had never been heard. Deuteronomy 6, 5 instructed the people of God to, to worship God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Leviticus 19, 18, it taught them that they were to love their neighbors as themselves. And, of course, the Gospels, in the Gospels, Jesus famously sums up the whole law with these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And later that's echoed in, in, by Paul in Galatians 5, 14 and in, in Romans 13, 8 through 10. So what does it mean here when, when Jesus and later John call this a new commandment? Well, listen, friends, its newness has two faces to it. Number one, it is new because of its standard or its benchmark. Listen closely to what Jesus says and what John says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as, how should we love one another? Just as I have loved you. Or as John puts it, we ought to walk in the same way 
in which he walked. So now that Jesus is on the scene, the old commandment has a new benchmark because Jesus has fleshed out the commandment. He has shown what it's all about. He has fulfilled the commandment. So it has a new benchmark. It has a new standard, which is Jesus himself. But secondly, it is new because it flows out of and is enabled by the new covenant. The new covenant means that the command can now be kept, just as we saw in Jeremiah. Remember, Jesus' words were spoken on the very same night that he said this. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So the old commandment to love God and love fellow man represented by the two tables of the Ten Commandments, is now new. For God himself has shown up on the scene to show us what the love looks like. And more than that, God himself has shown up in our hearts to enable us to live that love out. That's why John says in verse 8, it is a new commandment that I'm writing you, which is true in him and in you. In him, the example of Christ And in you, through the abiding presence of the Spirit. Our love is evidence that the Holy Spirit resides in our heart. That the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This is referring to us. The darkness we were once in, present tense, is passing away. Present, I should say present tense, is passing away. It's happening right now. But the true light of Christ is shining through us in how we love. The passing away is certain, but it's progressive. Again, John reminds us that we are in the process of overcoming sin. I like the way D.A. Carson puts it in his commentary on John. He says, the more we recognize the depth of our own sin, the more we recognize the love of the Savior. The more we appreciate the love of the Savior, the higher his standard appears. The higher his standard appears, the more we recognize our selfishness, our innate self-centeredness, and the depth of our own sin. So we grow in holiness the more we understand, the more we see and savor Christ as the one we are to imitate. So we strive for holiness and for, as we imperfectly imitate Christ, but we strive nonetheless in the Spirit to imitate his love, especially his sacrificial love for his own people, for those who are his, for his brothers. And that leads me to my last point. A true knowledge of God I'm going to say a true walk with God necessarily means unassailable love for our brothers. For our brothers. There's much more that John is going to say as we get farther into this letter about love for our brothers. But here initially, let's just touch on this this morning. We are to love others, our neighbors in general, but beyond our love for others, we are to have a special and supernatural love for our brothers. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So the word brother here is not referring to your kin, like, your, like the brother in your, in your natural family, but your brother in your spiritual family. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So John is cycling back this theme of darkness and light that we saw in last week's sermon. Last week in verse 6 we read, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So here we see a bit more about what walking in darkness actually looks like. What does it look like to walk in darkness? I mean, it's to have a lack of love for those who you claim to be your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Now, I think John is narrowing his argument here to love for our brothers, not because we are not to love those outside the church. We are. But because our love for those in the church is to be a special love, particularly seen by the world as a supernatural love. The very reason that we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ is because we are united to one another. We believe that. We are united to one another in Christ. In our union with Christ, we are therefore united with one another. And therefore, love should flow freely to one another. It's the evidence of our union. What Jesus spoke of in his high priestly prayer. I'll remind you, we've read this a couple of times. But we'll keep going back to John, by the way, a lot through this series, the Gospel of John. But John 17 Verse 20, Jesus is praying that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So this is the evidence of true faith. If we don't love our brothers, we are like a lost man stumbling in the darkness, hurting others and hurting ourselves. When the light of life has shown up in our hearts, then we love freely and we love deeply. It's a love like Jesus' love that is gentle and kind and meek, yet likewise it is courageous and it confronts sin. It's not a manipulative love that seeks its own end, but a supernatural love that seeks God's glory. Yes, it flows, first of all, out of our love for God, and then it bends out toward others. So it's not that we, in and of ourselves, learn to love one another. I'll put it the way I put it in my notes here. It's not that we, in and of ourselves, learn to love difficult people. And let's face it, we're all difficult, okay? Each in our own unique way. But it's not that we, somehow in our strength, learn how to love difficult people. Oh, I I guess I'll just figure out how to love that person. That's not how it works. The way it works is this. God's love for his elect is now working through us toward one another. God's ability to love sinful, horrible, difficult people is now flowing through us to one another. That's how we love difficult people, and I'm included in that number. Like I said, we're all difficult people. God gets the glory as you are a conduit, and I are a conduit of his unsearchable, unsearchably deep, unconditional love for his people. It's unassailable, okay? It's unassailable, it's indomitable, it's undefeatable, if that's a word, because light always defeats darkness. Now, when you look at the text here, I love how John leaves no middle ground. You are either in the light, which equals love, or you are in darkness, which equals hate. If you don't have love for your brothers, you have hate. There is no such thing as an indifferent Christian. If we are living in the flesh and not loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we are in essence hating them. And that's the pattern of our life, then our salvation is in question. Why is there so much disunity and turmoil in the churches of America today and the churches around the world today? Why is there so much disunity and turmoil? It's because there's a lot of unbelievers in our church roles. It's impossible to have the type of unity when One person who claims to be a Christian is not truly a believer, and the other person is. Love for God and others is the mark of a true believer, whereas the unbeliever cannot love God and therefore cannot truly love others the way God desires for him to. And that's what Paul teaches us in his letter to Titus. 
Titus 3.3, 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So that's the default setting for unbelievers. Then verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So again, we see obedience flowing out of what God has already done, the imperatives flowing out of the indicatives. So that brings us back full circle now. How do we know that we know him? How do you know that you know that you're united to him? How do we know that we are walking with him? How do we know that he is holding us in his hand? Well, take the tests. Do you see joyful obedience in your heart? Do you sincerely desire to imitate Christ? Do you have an unassailable love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? We're not talking about perfect obedience or perfect imitation or perfect love. We're talking about evidence. Do you see these things and do you see them more and more and more as you progress in the Christian life? 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. If you fail to meet the test, then I entreat you to repent of your sins this morning. Come and put your faith for the first time in the one who died for sinners to satisfy God's wrath. Come to the one who is truly love. Turn from your sin, turn from yourself, and believe. And when you do, you'll experience true love for the very first time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would take seriously the words of the Apostle Paul when he tells us to test ourselves, to to examine ourselves, to see whether or not we are in the faith. And we should pass the test, according to Paul, because Christ Jesus is in us. But then he goes on to say, unless you fail the test. Father, if we don't have a desire, a joyful desire in our heart to be conformed to what your word says about the way we should live as believers, that's not a good sign. Father, if we don't have in our heart a desire to be like Jesus, because in our actuality, if we're Christians, we're being conformed to the image of Christ. So if we don't have a desire to live the way Jesus lived, then something's wrong. And Father, if we don't have love, because all the commandments that we're to keep are boiled, boiled down to simply loving you, and loving others, especially the brothers. If we don't have that love, then, Father, something's wrong. So I pray that you cause each one of us in here, myself included, to examine ourselves all the time, to make sure we know that we know. Do we see these things? And, Father, if we do, we rejoice, not because we have these things in us naturally. We rejoice because you put your spirit in us And you're the one that's causing these things. You're the one that causes obedience. You're the one that causes imitation. You're the one that stirs up genuine love. 
So, Father, you get all the glory in this examination process, and we get none of it. So, Lord, if there be anyone in here who's tempted to look at their life and say, oh, I've got obedience, and, and i got imitation, and I'm, I love people. Wow, I'm something. Lord, I pray that you'd strike down that prideful attitude. And that we'd understand the only reason we can do anything that pleases you is because you brought us into a new covenant through the blood of Christ. A glorious new covenant where you are the covenant giver and the covenant keeper for us. God, we praise you and we thank you. For those of us in here who, who have confidence that we're united to Christ by faith, Lord, we praise you and thank you for what you've done in our hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.